0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday in year B, but also the year 2021 in the secular calendar, this Sunday is going to be All Saints Day. However, the texts assigned for the weekend, if it weren't the celebration of All Saints Day, are the texts we're going to look at. Because the All Saints Day reading those three readings occur each year. That's going to be Revelation 7, First John 3, Matthew 5. You get those every year, A, B, and C. All Saints Day is marked off on the calendar by looking at the proper readings, which there are propers 3 all the way through 29. They fall across the summer. Just as we were talking about last week with Reformation Sunday, those are missed too. So what you do to figure out which text you have for a given weekend, you go to the first... Well, you go to th- you go to Christmas, and you count off four Sundays before Christmas. That's that gives you the four Sundays of Advent, and then that first Sunday prior to Advent, that's going to be Proper Twenty Nine, and so you count backwards from that, Proper Twenty Eight, Proper Twenty Seven, etc. cetera, and so this weekend on our calendar in twenty twenty one would be Proper Twenty Seven, unlike Proper Twenty Six, which we missed last week. And you never get that text. Proper 27, you do get some years, because sometimes you skip 25 and 26, sometimes 26 and 27, depending on where in the week Christmas falls and how close a Sunday is before it gets cut off. So today we look at proper 27. If you want to look at the All Saints Day text, there the link for that is recorded. The show is recorded. The link is in the footnotes of today's episode. So, for proper 27, our Old Testament text is from 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16, the Epistle from Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 24 to 28, and the Gospel reading is from Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. For the Old Testament reading today, what we have is an account of the prophet Elijah. At the beginning of chapter 17, he predicted a drought that would fall upon the land, Chapter 18 will tell us that this drought lasts at least into the third year. We, we actually need the New Testament to fill in the detail as we learn from Luke chapter 4 verse 25 that this drought lasted for three years and six months. So as the drought is going on, Yahweh sends Elijah to the brook Kareth, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, and he cares for Elijah there by ravens ravens bring him his food to consume in that time not told precisely how long he's there only that he remains until the brook kareth dries up and then god sends him elsewhere and that's our text for today then the word of yahweh came to him arise go to zarephath which belongs to sidon and dwell there behold i have commanded a widow there to feed you so he arose and went to zarephath and when he came to the gate to the city Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. So God's word comes to Elijah. He takes him from Kareth, Right, arise, leave Kareth, go to Zarephath. So in Kareth, God fed Elijah by raven. In Zarephath, God is going to feed Elijah by widows odd account. How many of you would say that you have had ravens feed you? I mean, just not the way creation works, right? God put man here to care for beast and bird, not the other way around. It also would not have been the case that you would have expected a widow to be caring for one of the people of God. She is the one who's in need of care. Many Old Testament passages point this out, that she is likely to be oppressed in various ways, and that God's people need to look out for her. They need to provide for her. The church needs to provide for her. So, why? Why does the Lord provide in such a way? Well, Elijah, first off, doesn't have a means by which to provide for himself. As a prophet who is the Lord's prophet full-time, he's not going out and working a field He's not planting and reaping. He doesn't have that kind of work. He doesn't have livestock that he's raising for himself. In essence, he is like one of the Levitical priests whose job was to care for the temple the whole time or the tabernacle the whole time. And so they also didn't have an income and the tithes given to the Lord's house were to care for them. Well, Elijah is to be cared for somehow, and he has to trust that the Lord is going to care for him. And the Lord works in a couple odd ways in this chapter to provide for his servant. The Lord speaks here. Go to Zarephath. Zarephath is maybe about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem, just to help you locate it on the map um, if you're looking at an Old Testament map, it's easier to find Tyre and Sidon right along the Mediterranean Sea, up to the north northwest of Jerusalem. This is located probably roughly halfway in between those two cities, so helping you find it again on the map. That does mean she's not an Israelite. What makes that relevant? Well, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The Lord has spoken to a widow and commanded the widow to feed his prophet. That's a bit profound when you consider it. She can't even care for herself, and yet she is to care for the man of God. Elijah trusts and he goes. He comes to the gate of Zarephath and he sees a widow who's gathering sticks and he assumes it's her, right? Is it her? Well, her response would tell us that it most likely is. Uh, Her response down in verse 12 is she says, as Yahweh your God lives, she knows who this man is. So the connection there seems to make it be that he has the right widow at least. Although, that would be certainly intriguing if this was not her um, that God had spoken to. So, she is busy gathering sticks. And she's going to say why, and we come to her in just a moment. But before we do, Elijah asks her, her for a drink of water. Basically, a cup to drink. And she's responding by doing it, right? Just... I mean, you might say kind-heartedness. Otherwise, it could be cultural that if a man makes a request of a woman, that she is to do this thing, especially if it's not a hard task. So getting him a cup of water, she's going to do this. And as she's going, he calls out to her and he asks her for more. He asks for bread. This might be his way of testing to see if she was that widow uh, that the Lord had called to and spoken to on his behalf. The, The bringing a drink of water bit has a couple of Old Testament connections and references, doesn't it? As you might think of when Abraham's servant leaves to go back to Abraham's family and find a wife, For Isaac, the one who waters the camel, right? Camels. That's the woman that God has has appointed. Something like that. As your God lives, as Yahweh your God lives. So she knows the divine name, but she doesn't claim him, right? Your God. Remember, she's not an Israelite. She is of Zarephath. She's from between Tyre and Sidon. She is Phoenician. This might connect us, just in terms of the fullness of Scripture, to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus meets the sire a Phoenician woman who asks him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So she explains her situation to Elijah. She has no bread. She has just a handful of flour. I mean, you can picture that, right? Your hand. Make it into a small cup. Now fill it with that powdery white stuff we call flour. That's all she's got. She is almost entirely exhausted. Her entire supply. She's a widow, so she doesn't have an income. She doesn't have the ability to provide for herself. She needs the help and the assistance of others. She's not receiving any, and here's this random guy asking her to help him. All I have is a handful of flour and a little oil. I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go prepare it for myself and for my son that we may eat and die. She's giving up. The drought is harsh against the land. We're not told how long into the drought this text occurs, but it's hit and it's hurt, and she's running on fumes. She and her son are going to eat their last meal within the next couple of hours, and then they're just going to ride out this famine until they die of starvation. There is no plan. Other than that, there's no plan other than death. An interesting connection to just the the broken status of the world. There is no plan other than death. We cannot save ourselves. Thankfully, there is a plan that comes in Christ, right? And so the Lord has a plan for this woman too. Not quite as grand as Jesus' salvation for all people, but he's going to save her and he's going to save her family. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. So Elijah tells her to go ahead, go home, make this bread for yourself and for your son. However, first make me a little cake and bring it to me. Afterward, make for yourself and your son. So he calls her to trust in him, to trust in Yahweh that God will provide. That after she has taken from that handful of flour to make something for Elijah to eat, that there will be enough left over for her to eat and her son to eat. Because then he explains it, right? Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil not empty until the day Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. God, my God, will miraculously provide for you and for all the need of your house until he restores rain, until he takes the drought away. That could be a couple of years, right, from this point, depending on where in the the three-and-a-half-year drought this occurred. This is not her God. He has to specify Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the true God, right? And he will do this. What a promise. It seems so small. It seems so insignificant for God to feed one woman and her little child. But the Lord cares for his creation. He cares for those he has made. He cares for his people. And he's going to care for this woman. He's going to care for this boy. And he does it. She went and did as Elijah said. She trusted. She acted. As the Lord gave her to do. And verse 15. She and he, so Elijah, and her household. Theoretically, that's just her son, right? Right. But the phrase makes it sound like it could have included some others as well. They ate for many days. I mean, if you can imagine a woman, like we've been describing, who has nothing to offer, and you've got a drought that's happening, and so everybody's hungry, everybody's in dire straits. But this widow seems to be doing okay. Could some of her neighbors... Some of her extended family, perhaps, or her husband's family. Could some of them start looking to her for care and for provision? That would be an inversion of everything normal in their culture. But that household word at least asks us to consider it, that the Lord may have provided through her for Elijah, her son, and possibly others verse 16 it goes just as the Lord said the jar of flour was not spent the jug of oil did not become empty we don't actually even have it recorded until right until the rain came because um, that's not going to happen for a while yet so as God promises so God does The focus of this text is on the promise of the Lord and his ability to fulfill that promise and our trust in his promise. So the Lord has promised a drought and Elijah must trust him and it comes. The Lord has promised to care for Elijah through the raven and he does. The Lord has promised to care for Elijah by means of a widow and he does. The Lord has promised the widow that her food will not run out as long as there is no rain upon the earth and he does. He provides. So, trust. Trust in the Lord's provision. This, this is the application for us from this text. What has the Lord promised you? How do we trust it? The Lord has promised you forgiveness of all your sins in Christ's death upon the cross. The Lord has promised you in the resurrection of Christ a life that never ends, because you will be raised... and the Lord has promised you that he is making a paradise for you where you will get to take of the heavenly banquet forevermore. So we trust in his promises. We know, we hope that what he has given is good and true and right, and we live as though it is. We live not by means of the things of this world. We live by trusting that he is who he has said he is and that he will do for us what he has said. He will do. Our epistle text for the upcoming weekend of proper 27 is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 28. Now, it's noteworthy that this continues the chapter on worship that we studied from last week in Proverbs 26, and so we're going to go ahead and just read this. It's a shorter section than what we had together last week, verses 24 to 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him so as a context to understand today's text if you've been listening recently you've heard me talk about this already but i'll review it for you again for those who are just jumping in it will be beneficial the high priest in the old testament sacrificial system so the way god set things up to work for his old testament people in the old covenant that they had to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins you have a tabernacle early days um, from the time of moses until they are settled in the promised land, up until the time of King Solomon, who builds a temple, so a more permanent house for God. God is going to dwell in this place for his people, on behalf of his people. The tabernacle or the temple alike have two rooms there's the holy place, which contains the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of the bread of the presence, and then there's a giant curtain. Jewish tradition says four inches thick, that separates the holy place from a smaller room, a second room, deeper into the building, called the most holy place. The only thing in this room was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that is the throne of God. It's described in Exodus as having a mercy seat upon it. So it is a seat. It is a place that someone would sit on. Thus, it is a throne. It is the very throne of God himself, where he has said he will dwell in the midst of his people. He will speak. From it to his people. So it is the throne of the heavenly king here on earth. Makes it a holy place, so people don't just go into the most holy place, not at all. In fact, not even the holy place. Only the priests go into the holy place, and only the high priest goes into the most holy place, but even he only once a year on a day today celebrated so, and called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. think that's Leviticus chapter 16. You can read about that practice. He has to make sacrifices first for himself, and then he makes sacrifices on behalf of the people. He has to take the blood of the sacrifices, sprinkling it on even the ark itself and before the ark for atonement of the people before God. Only he, only once a year. That's the picture that you need to have in mind in order to see what's happening here in the verses of our text today. Christ has entered so the high priest answers, Jesus is our great high priest, our better high priest, as the theme of Hebrews suggests, not into the holy places that have been made by hands. So Moses commissioned Bezalel and Oholiab to build the tabernacle, and they also got help from others. And Solomon. Solomon also constructs the temple by... I'm trying to remember who he, he, who he tasked it out to. Off the top of my head, I don't recall. But men made these buildings, whether the tent or the, the, the fancier building of the temple. I don't know that I want to call it fancier. It was quite a, quite something, though. I mean, estimates today is that it was over $2 billion worth of gold. But the tabernacle was quite quite a sight to behold, or it would have been, certainly when you read that description. So, these were built by man. They were not the actual thing itself, the actual throne of God, the actual throne room of God. These were copies of it. God described it to man. Man did what man could do to build it, but it's not the thing itself. So, they are copies of the true things. This is not a Gnostic teaching. It is not to say that that all things physical are bad and all things outside of this world, all things spiritual, are good. That's an ancient heresy of the church in the first century. This is simply saying that the tabernacle and the temple were, even though God chose to dwell in them, they were never his permanent home. Not in the same way, not in the same sense. They were copies. They were An attempt to place God on this earth on our behalf see there's going to be a better temple right Jesus tear down this temple I will rebuild it in three days he is the true temple who has John 1 dwelled with man tabernacled with us so Jesus enters into not a copy But the real thing he enters into the heavenly throne room of god he comes into the presence of the holy god and he does so on our behalf he does so for you and for me to make intercession for us to stand between god and man to serve on our behalf that the lord god almighty would see you and me not as the guilty sinner that we are But that he would see our sin covered washed clean by the blood of christ and he would see the righteousness of his son jesus in us this is why christ came this is why he died on the cross this is why he rose again from the dead was to redeem you and to redeem me to bring us into the presence of the holy god that we might live with him in his paradise forever this is good news and Jesus did not have to, verse 25, do this repeatedly. The high priest did, right? He enters every year into the holy places with blood that is not his own, blood of animals. If if he had to do this for us, if the high priest, so Aaron or Caiaphas, Ananias, those are a few examples of men that we know served in the role of high priest If he had had to do this, he would have had to do it since the foundation of the world. He'd have to do it since sin started, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He would have to be harming himself all that time, shedding his own blood in order to, to do this. He would have to live all that time. And the high priest simply does not do such a thing. The old covenant high priest was not able to do such a thing. But this high priest, this better high priest, he has, he does, he has entered into the throne room of God once for all. At the end of the ages, so the end of time is soon, right? Jesus is coming soon, the last day, his second coming. He has done this. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has made atonement before god on our behalf he has atoned for us he has made us at one right i like to break a tone down into those two things a-t-o-n-e so at and one god has made us at one with himself again by his own most precious blood several scripture verses will pick up on that idea you are not your own you were bought for price first corinthians 6 be one such example. Verse 27 then gets into the idea of death and what's been appointed. The Lord has made it so that man can die. Well, on account of sin, right? It's not like this is not our fault. This is our fault. We die because we sin. But God has appointed for man to die once. Once. And when you have died, when I have died, we come to the Lord's judgment throne. That's it. There is a second death. That's if the judgment is negative and you're sent to hell. But man only dies physically in the body once. Your blood is only shed that one time. But Christ, Christ, he died once. To bear the sins of many, something your your blood and my blood could not do, but his blood did. Christ was appointed to die once, and he will appear a second time. So we, after we die, we appear before God's judgment throne. Christ, after his death, he will appear again in this creation to save us. He doesn't have to deal with sin again, as the high priest had to do it every year. He's already taken care of that. That is accomplished by his first death and by his resurrection. Now he gets to appear to save So as we are, we die and are brought to judgment. So Christ has died, and he comes to the judgment on our behalf to rescue us from it, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so that's the note to pick up on here, right? Eagerly wait for him. You and me, we are to eagerly wait for Christ's return. That's a challenge. It's not something we often probably are doing. We are very caught up in this world and in the moment. We are caught up in living and enjoying life and uh, working and eating and all the things that we do. Stressed out about so much. Wait eagerly for Christ's return. Fix your eyes on paradise. Fix your eyes on Christ. How can you wait eagerly? Pray. Pray every day, pray throughout the day, or as we're told to do actually in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. First, First Thessalonians 5:17. yeah, pray without ceasing. Remember those three words you've memorized a verse. Ask the Lord in your prayer that He would help you to do this, that He would give you the, the eager waiting, the patience to wait. Uh, read God's word, know what Christ's promises are, and then again pray that he would keep them. These are good things. Share the good news with your neighbor of this great high priest that we have who has laid down his blood once and for all to atone us to God. That would be part of that eagerly waiting thing. If we truly believe Christ could come back tomorrow, And anybody who doesn't believe in him tomorrow when he returns goes to hell. That would change the way we live today, right? We would want to serve our neighbor. We would want to share the good news with them. Either that or we really hate them. Christ could come back tomorrow. His return could be any day. So we are called throughout the New Testament not to focus on ourselves, but to share the good news with others to make disciples of all nations, to lose this life for Christ's sake and the gospel. Those sorts of statements. So, eagerly wait for Christ. Trust in him. Trust in his promises. He will fulfill them. This all brings us to our gospel text, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. This literally does pick right up where last week's text left off. And so for the greater context to this section, Jesus has answered the Sadducees trap question on marriage, that leveret marriage question they asked about if there's a man who has six brothers and he has a wife and doesn't have a son and he dies and his brother fulfills the law of leveret marriage, takes her as his own wife. In order to have a son by her that would then carry on his brother's family tree but he dies without a son and so the third brother acts and he dies without a son all the way through to the seventh brother whose wife will she be jesus stuns them with the answer and then the scribe in last week's text asks jesus what the greatest commandment is and the lord says that it is essentially to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind He quotes from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then Jesus is going to say, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man, this scribe, responds to Jesus that he has answered well. And Jesus talks to him a little bit more, tells him by the end of their conversation that he is not far from the kingdom of God. No one at that point will ask jesus any more questions because they have seen kind of the shame of the sadducees and also just the stunning response to the the scribe as well and so nobody asking him questions he asked them one he asked them about david from the psalms and why david could call the messiah his lord if the messiah was supposed to be his son nobody could answer that either but they were impressed with his teachings and so that's the context that brings us to our text Today, and that we'll start with verse thirty-eight. We'll read this in two chunks: thirty-eight to forty. First, in his teaching, he said, "Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." So, in our text. That we start out with jesus is teaching he's continuing to teach and he warns them about the scribes beware the scribes now this is interesting because he had just spoken to the one scribe and had a decent conversation and a decent outcome you are not far from the kingdom of god now he's not in because he doesn't believe in jesus he's got the old testament down that's why he's not far from it so just just believe trust in christ but here is a, a general description of the scribes as a group, as a whole. And it's all negative. This is going to parallel quite well with Matthew 23, the seven woes that Jesus speaks against the scribes and the Pharisees. So you can see some of that if you look at them side by side. You'll see similarities. But we're just going to look at the text that we have. You, the scribes like to walk around in long robes. All right, so what is that? Well, we could make the argument, as some do, that this is just whatever the scribe's attire was. So almost a a cultural and religious practice that they were wearing an outfit that drew more attention to themselves. There's something to that, but I think it, it actually connects to Scripture rather than culture. If you go back to Numbers chapter 15... You have a description, basically, that has the people wearing a poncho, for lack of better description. Like a piece of fabric that has a hole cut in the middle so it can be worn over the head, covering the, the body. Like, you know, like a, a wearable blanket kind of a thing. And at the corner, each of the four corners, they were to make a tassel. And those tassels were very specifically in Numbers 15 said to remind the people of the commandments of God. So you're walking around the marketplace, you're seeing a bunch of other um, Israelites, other people of God, and you see tassel, 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 God's command, God's command, God's command, tassel, 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 God's command, God's command, God's command. You're seeing it everywhere to remind you of God's commandments. You are not to forget them. The Matthew 23 parallel text does talk about those tassels a little bit, um, in a sense. It says more so that they like to make the fringes on their garments long. So that's a little closer. But that could be the same referent point that we have here in Mark 12. Then they like the greetings in the marketplaces. This isn't described all that directly for us either. Is this a title thing? Matthew 23 again. Talks about that. They like to be called rabbi. So, rabbi or teacher, perhaps. Is it the gesture, like the actual posture of a greeting that is given to the scribes? I don't know how people greeted them. That's part of the problem here. Uh, There are times where you greet someone in respect to them. Uh, We've lost that as a culture today in the U.S., by and large. There used to be a time when a woman entered the room that men rose, like we stood. We just did it because it was viewed as a thing of honor and respect. Um, There are other such symbols, but culturally, historically speaking, there have been many places where when you see someone who outranks you, you bow. And so maybe that's it. Or lordship, kings with their signet rings, when you came into the king's presence, even the Pope has done this, you kiss his ring. Maybe that's it. Somehow this is a sign of respect and admiration. Whatever it may look like, they they want those. They 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 don't just appreciate them, they look for them. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. So the synagogues is a connection to where the people worshipped. The synagogue would have the scroll that contains the word of God, and so the scribes wanted to sit as close to that scroll as they could. In a sense, there's nothing actually wrong with that, but they're doing it to be looked at. That's gonna be the problem. And it's the same with the place of honor at feast. You can read about this one. This one is described for us in Luke chapter 14, verses seven through 11 as Jesus lays this out about, when you go to a feast, do not sit in a seat of honor, lest someone who is more important than you comes, and the host has you move to make room for this person, and you have to take the lower seat, rather take the lowest seat, so that the host will come and, well, may come and lift you up and exalt you. So that's the picture here. They seek after the The great chairs, the great seats, just as James and John, the disciples, were seeking after the great seats in Jesus' kingdom. They devour widows' houses. What's that about? Now, hang on there. We'll come back to that. That's the rest of the text. But for now, we've got to finish this paragraph. A pretense, they make long prayers. So the definition of a pretense, when I looked it up, trying to appear more important or more valuable than is actually the case. You see the theme? They are trying to draw attention to themselves, so they make long prayers. This again, this is the idea of them essentially saying, look at me. Come on, world, look at me, honor me, respect me. There's a lot of that today. I mean, even our children fall into that trap, right? How many times do our little kids want our attention and they yell out, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. Mommy, watch this. They do it all the time. It doesn't change when we're grown up either. I and mean, Peter did this. We gave up everything to follow you, Lord. Matthew chapter, i sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Again, James and John in chapter 10 did this too. We've already talked about that. scribes do this they want to be seen and so jesus condemns them they will receive the greater condemnation that might be the hardest phrase in this text what exactly to say about it they will receive the greater condemnation so there's there's a comparative here there is a greater condemnation which implies that there is a lesser condemnation and what does that mean does this mean that there are different levels of hell different levels of punishment i mean the way we think of hell we we talk about hell as being the separation from god the separation from all that is good um, a lake of fire how can that be worse for some than for others right to be apart from god is is all that there is how can it get worse than that and yet there are texts that suggest maybe it does Jesus telling the disciples in other places in the Gospels that it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah or for Tyre than it will be for some of those who have seen his miracles and rejected him. Harsh words, and we're, we're not fully aware of what they mean. Maybe this is like James chapter 3, verse 1, where James tells us that we should not all become teachers, because teachers will be judged more strictly. And so, this is a reference to these scribes in a position of authority, having abused that authority, and now they're going to be judged more strictly than others. Another option here is that this could be a comparative of earthly judgment versus godly judgment. So, condemnation in this world, if the world hates you or turns against you or seeks to punish you, those things can be pretty rough. But to be condemned by God, all the much more so. So the scribes perhaps being rejected eventually by the Romans, uh, the Jewish nation being torn down as it stood at the time, versus the judgment that comes from God himself on the day of judgment for not believing in the son that he has sent. So, a few options for you to consider on what exactly that last part means. Now, let's connect back. Let's read verses 41 to 44 so that we can understand what he means by they devour widows' houses. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus sits down in the temple, to teach. Now, where is the question? And that's not answered specifically for us. The temple is going to begin, when you first come into the temple area, the complex, you're entering the court of the Gentiles. As you move through the court of the Gentiles, as you're moving towards the temple, there are a few gates that will take you into what is called the court of the women. So, only A Gentile, a non-Israelite, could only go as far as the court of the Gentiles. If you were an Israelite, male or female, you could go at the next level. You could go into the court of women. Women cannot go past that point. Then you're going to have the court of Israel, followed by the court of the priests, and then you're finally going to get to the temple proper, the actual building which has the holy place and the most holy place. Where is Jesus doing this? Where is he sitting down at this moment to teach his disciples and anyone else who is listening? It could quite likely be the court of the Gentiles so that as many people would hear as possible. Uh, It could be the court of the women where it would only be Israelites who are hearing that would connect to Jesus at times suggesting that he has come for the Jews. Um, but we know his message also goes to the Gentiles. So which of those courts he's in, I'm not sure, but it can't be past the court of the women because this poor widow is there present to be seen. She could not go past that point. So what does he see? As he's sitting there, he's watching as the people are taking their money and they're putting them into this treasury, this storeroom, this chest. There's, There's more than one chest in the temple that these things could have been occurring in, so the offering box idea. Hard to say exactly where he is, but they're putting money into the box, copper coins into the box is the the literal word there in the Greek, Um, Kalkon, I think it was. And so then he's observing how many rich people are putting in large sums. I mean, we could... We could probably debate about the idea that they're doing something to be seen, right? It's observable. That's That would connect it back to the first paragraph this weekend, the idea that the scribes do what they do in order to be seen. But that's not the point Jesus is going to make about it, right? The rich have much. They're putting in a lot. It's not sacrificial, in, in a sense. Almost like the offering between Cain and Abel. As brothers, Abel gives the firstborn of his flock, trusting that God will provide a second and a third and so forth. Where Cain, Cain doesn't give the first fruit of his harvest. He just gives some. And that's kind of the picture with the rich here. They're just giving some of what they've got. They're giving some of their wealth. It's not necessarily wrong, right? But it's not, it's not like what they're doing is anything special, that's going to be seen as favored by the Lord. So what we see next is that this widow, this woman who does not have much because a widow cannot provide for herself. The connection of the poor widow here to the the poor widow in Zarephath is probably the reason these two readings are paired together. So this poor widow takes and she puts in two lepta. Lepton. Uh, Lepta is a small copper coin. And two of them together make a quadrants, which would be one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius is a day's pay. So, eight-hour day, so one-eighth of what you earn in an hour. If you think of a minimum wage worker maybe making eight bucks an hour, this could be about a dollar, the equivalent today in, in today's money. I know the text here reads a penny. It's a little more than a penny, but this is... This is about as small as an amount of money as you can get, right? This is probably the smallest of their coins, the least valuable of their coins. She had two of them, and she gives both of them. Jesus then looks at this situation, calls the disciples to himself, and says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You can see the picture, right? And that comparison idea, Jesus looks at this as, as a percentage thing. Hmm. I mean, you've got the 10% tithe that's instructed in Scripture, certainly. They have much. And so, they, yeah, they, okay, they might have given a lot in terms of sheer number. But if you have $100,000 and you give $10,000, you still have $90,000 left. If you have $2 and you give $2, you have zero left. You have nothing. And that's what Jesus is observing. And this isn't. This seems to be an observation. Keep that in mind. She gave 100%. Uh, I'm not making that into a we-must-give-100%-for-God kind of a statement. Uh, just she gave all she had, right? She had nothing left, whereas they did not. Their percentage was not as high as hers. That is the point Jesus is making with the comparison between the rich and the widow. The point that he's making overall, I don't think even goes at that, though, right? Jesus here does not commend her, nor does he condemn her. I don't know if you've considered it that way before, but look at what he says again. There is nothing in what he says that actually commends her gift. He doesn't talk about how great her faith is. He doesn't talk about um, how the Lord is with her. None of those statements are made. Contrast that. Go ahead a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 14 and and read about the woman uh, who anoints him, right? Where he says of her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I mean, see the difference. He doesn't quite laud her faith there. He does in other texts about the women that you see in Mark's gospel, like that Syrophoenician woman that was mentioned earlier in the episode today from Mark 7. That's not here. This is just an observation of what she has done. He does not commend it, per se, nor does he condemn her either. You don't see him say that she has done something foolish. Her act, if anything, her act is like the scribe last week that Jesus looked at and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. If anything, her action here shows that she has a value to the Old Testament, that she understands the ways of God, and that she is willing to give everything and trust in him. And that would be good. However, without Christ, it is nothing. And so the the statement here doesn't seem to be going in that direction. What I want to connect you to instead is verse 40 again. Beware of the scribes who devour widows houses. He says that and you turn around and the next thing that happens in the text is the scribes devouring a widow's house right there in front of them where they all see it happen. She now has nothing. It has been consumed. This is not good. The scribes have done a bad thing to her. Instead of the church caring for her, she thinks she has to give everything she has to the church. Now, it's not wrong for her to give. The Levites had no income in the Old Testament. They lived off of the tithes of the people, and yet they themselves tithed. It's not that she shouldn't give, but it's that the purpose of the, the, what she's giving, the purpose of all the gifts of the rich people, is that she would be fed. Are they going to do that? maybe probably not tying back into 40 again she's like the widow of zarephath who's preparing at this point to die that or she's trusting that god will provide for her which would be good that would be faith but if it's not faith in christ it's not going to matter in the end unfortunately so that's a connection that you want to make and see in this text the scribes living for the attention of the people that they would be seen that their works would be known that they would be well loved and honored among the people they will receive greater condemnation and then we watch it happen to this poor woman to this poor widow alright that's our text that we have for this weekend proper 27 (laughs) (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.